Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got Scott Berman. He's with the uh, 76ers, Philly 76ers, as the NBA statistician. Also have him on the podcast today because he's a principal with Panther, uh, an investment group, kind of dipping his toes into cannabis. We'll talk about all of that today. Scott, thanks for being on The Talking Hedge. Yeah, thanks for having me. For people who haven't heard about you, uh, don't know anything about what you're doing, you just give us a little uh, intro. Sure. Um, so I live in Philadelphia, PA. I've uh, been involved in the cannabis world since 2014. Originally got involved through political advertising. I had a political ad agency here uh, that did online ads for addressable voter targeting. And I got involved in the marijuana advocacy groups called Marijuana Policy Project and the DPA groups like that. And uh, just got really excited about where this, this space was headed. Um, 2017, I got involved in the space as an investor in the Panther Opportunity Fund. Since that time, we've done about 16 investments in cannabis companies. Um, we, there was a previous fund with another 20 or so investments. So between our group, we're about 35 companies total. We like to take an active role in the space, uh, make a lot of friends and uh, make some magic happen along the way. Interesting. Well, I want to talk about those investments and kind of the the, the progression it's made over the years. Uh, and we'll talk about kind of what was hot pre-pandemic and and uh, and what is now. Um, but first, I kind of want to talk about um, your role. You've been with the Philadelphia 76ers for a few decades. Yes. Um, you are maybe a statistician. Is that, I don't know if that's the correct title. Yes. Uh, is- how'd you get into that? Um, yeah, what's that like? So I got into it at a very young age. My father actually kept the 24-second shot clock for the Sixers starting in the late 50s, early 60s. So when I was about 10 or 12 years old, I came out to the games and my dad would give me a program and I would keep score in the book just for fun. Graduated college in 1988 and they offered me a job and I was really happy to be paid for something I thought was a lot of fun. So um, I started working a lot of college basketball in Philadelphia, like Villanova and Temple, Sal, et cetera. And then um, a couple of years later, I started working full-time for the Sixers. So it's about 33 years ago now I've been uh, doing that. So the job basically is uh, attending every home game and keeping stats on a computer, um, every stat for both teams. And um, it's, it's an exciting and fun and intense job. And I've been doing it, working with the same crew for a long time, too. So made a lot of friends along the way. Very cool. Got about another month before March Madness, which, uh, of course, is is kicked off by National Corn Dog Day. Everybody <laughs> knows that, right? Speaking of munchies, though, um, the entire professional sports leagues seem to kind of be on the same page with uh, regards to to cannabis testing. So uh, the NFL kind of made a mention about it. NHL wasn't going to test for it. Uh, Major League Baseball wasn't going to test for it. And I think the NBA finally came out and said, yeah, during this whole pandemic thing, we're just not going to test for it any longer. Do you think that's going to kind of move forward and be the new norm? Is, is there even a buzz about it or is it just going to kind of wash away? What, what's your take on that yeah. whole topic? I think it's a trend that's going to accelerate. Um, And a lot of it has to do with the politics of cannabis. Some many of these players now live in a fully legal state, adult use. So telling them they can't consume cannabis is like you can't have a beer either. 
So, you know, it's, it's come to that point where it's really a bad situation where the league is prohibiting something that's now a legal substance where they reside. So I think that we still have some ways to go, but the, the trend is in the right direction. Um, it's in the NBA, for example, about 75 to 80% of the players in the NBA smoke cannabis or consume cannabis on a regular basis. That's an open secret that's been around for many years. The NBA testing program has been, we're going to test you once a year and we're going to tell you exactly when it's going to happen. And after that, do what you want. So it's sort of been, you know, a wink type of situation um, the last few years. I do think we have to get further federal cl uh, clarity on the laws before the leagues completely, you know, allow, allow cannabis in full use. So we're still, we're getting there, but uh, we've made a lot of progress the last few years. What's it going to take for athletes to be a little bit more vocal while they're still uh, playing? Gronkowski is about to go public with his CBD company. Um, that could cause some issues with the NBA. I don't really know what, what their, uh, or the NFL, I don't really know what their rules are. Um, but what about the local level? So you're on the board of directors with Athletes for Care with my friend Marvin Washington, and you have a lot of athletes, a lot of retired athletes. But is the voice as strong when they're retired? In other words, what's it going to take for athletes to speak up while they're still playing? That's a great point. I think the, the answer is no. The vo it's not as good for active players because they could get fired very quickly. They could get in a lot of trouble with the leagues. And so they're, they're afraid to really speak out. So thank you for mentioning Athletes for Care. That was actually formed uh, initially by Riley Cote, who was a Philadelphia Flyers hockey player. And he really was afraid of losing his job. Um, so he kept everything on the down low. As soon as he retired, he started to become much more outspoken about it. So to answer the question, we really need the leagues to uh, relax the rules even further for active players to come out because there's still there's plenty of active players that are involved in the cannabis world now. They just can't say it publicly. So once the threat of punishment from the leagues completely goes away, I think you'll see many more athletes talk about how it, it really does help them, you know, with injuries or mental aspects. And uh, I think it'll, it'll trend in the right direction very soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hopefully there's, there's a, an amazing statistic. I think um, Charles Barkley said on uh, shark tank, that something like 85% of all retired athletes go broke. So you have Le LeBron James spending 1.5 million a year on his body and uh, you know, um, uh, the Seahawks quarterback, uh, Russell, will, uh, he's spending a, a million, I think, a year on his body. So for a lot of these athletes that go broke and can't afford that, they have to use cannabis, right? So um, I, I guess, are they just going to be able to allow CBD during the season instead of pain medications that they, they push on people and eventually allow for some kind of cannabis, uh, maybe yes. in the off season? I don't know. I think they will. And I think CBD is being used today. I think mm -hmm. trainers in the NBA are giving CBD as treatment for many players. I, I think that's happening a lot now. Um, the other thing that we want to reverse too is the just the giving folks uh, opioid medication for injuries. You know, that's been a major problem in the NFL for many years. And a lot of the athletes are, are saying we'd much rather consume cannabis than take pills for our injuries. So I think, um, and then there's the concussion right. situation. A big part of what Athletes for Care talks about is traumatic brain injury mm -hmm. and how to help athletes that are, you know, getting knocked around too much. 
And, you know, cannabis, hemp, and CBD certainly provide relief there. And that's been proven over many times. Yeah, that whole patent, 6630507 with the neural protectant would help with hockey and soccer and football and all these, these head injuries, uh, rugby, anything else. Yes. Um, what, tell me a little bit about the local level. So the Marijuana Policy Project, you're kind of helping them out in the Pennsylvania area. Tell me a little bit about what's happening at the, the local active level. Sure. So Marijuana Policy Project for many years has written ballot initiatives in states that had votes up for up for grabs. And so each year they would focus or each election year they would focus on a different place. So but then you have a medical program in place and then it's time to get it from medical to adult use. So locally here in Pennsylvania, we've had a pretty strong medical program for a couple of years and the governor is trying to flip it to adult use. We also have our neighbor right here in New Jersey, which legalized adult use and is looking to implement a law very shortly. And then you have New York State, where the governor has been pushing hard for it. So these advocacy groups, even though they win a battle, they have not won the war yet. And there's still a lot of uh, local issues that need to be resolved. Once there's a law in place, there's still many local issues on where and when and how many cannabis businesses will be allowed to operate. So there's all, there's all sorts of things that happen even after election day that really set the trajectory for the market. So what has happened since election? I would imagine that being a lot closer to DC than I am here in Seattle, that you kind yeah. of felt that more. So we saw it in the stock market, my gosh, with the you know, New Jersey and Montana, um, Arizona, um, what was the other one? Missouri with uh, medical. South uh, Dakota. That, yeah, South Dakota can't forget about them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so where are you guys at? Because um, Vir, uh, Virginia just became the 16th yes. state. Now they came out right away, right after the election and said, we're broke. But that happened fast. So within 90 days, boom. Um, I guess that New Jersey is, I mean, um, New York is going to have FOMO and they're going to go pretty soon. I'm yes. also guessing that Vermont, um, no, no, Kentucky. Kentucky has a least funded pension plan in the country. Yes. Um, so whether Mitch McConnell wants it or not, they are broke. Yes. Um, where are you guys at? How broke are you? In Pennsylvania? We're yeah. quite broke. We're <laughs> incredibly broke. There's going to be a major hole in the budget that's 10 times the size of what it normally is. And for about two years, they've been saying cannabis can help fill just budget woes You know, before this happened. They can provide jobs and tax revenues. Now, when they sit to look at what 2020, you know, once they settle up all the numbers from 2020, it's going to look bad in every state. And at the same time, when you look at the legal cannabis states, Michigan and Illinois, who flipped in 2020, they've done, you know, incredible numbers. The tax revenues there are off the charts. So these other governors are saying we need the help, too. And, and cannabis is a super easy thing. You also mentioned FOMO. It's very important here in the Northeast. Um, because you have this whole market is one big economy and people from Philadelphia will drive into South Jersey to buy cannabis and people from New York City will drive into North Jersey to get cannabis. And the governors of both those states know that quite well. So the laws kind of have to be the same. There's too much movement in between. Mm -hmm. um, and so I predict within a, a year from now that all three have adult use and we'll be off to the races. Um, but I just wanted to touch on something about what's happened since Election Day in D.C. It's hard to understate or 
it's hard to overstate, he, you know, what's about to happen um, because of, of the election of, of Joe Biden, but also more importantly, what happened in Georgia with the runoff. The fact that the Democrats took those two seats and control the Senate meant that Chuck Schumer replaces Mitch McConnell. For the cannabis world, that is a huge deal for a lot of reasons. Mitch McConnell blocked a lot of legislation that, that a lot of uh, senators and congressmen wanted. Um, and Chuck Schumer is the opposite. He wants things to go quickly. So I believe that in the next six months or so, you're going to see movement on banking. Um, you might see movement on the 280E rule, which might be combined with banking. Um, and you're just going to see a lot of states then you know, be more willing to, to take the chance and really move forward. So it's an exciting time politically. So Mike uh, Crapo or Crapo with Idaho, he's no longer uh, head of the ba uh, banking committee. Yes. So that should help out a lot with, with yes. cannabis banking bills, the Moore Act, um, any, yep. anything would help. Absolutely. Uh, more friendly attorney general, certainly Merrick Garland, mm. um, certainly more of a friend than, you know, four years ago, um, when Trump won, you know, and his attorney general was not exactly friendly to the uh, cannabis space, Mr. Sessions. And so a lot of, uh, from the investor standpoint, a lot of money dried up in those days. And then you, you mentioned that the stock market bump, uh, because the opposite, four years ago that happened, everyone was like, oh, it's going to take a long time for cannabis. Now people are saying, you know, I think that real change is a lot closer. Let me buy some more public market stocks, you know, they're, they're on CNBC every day. And so people are more excited and we're beginning to see some more of that on the private level as well, because of what people are reading in the news. Mm -hmm. So it, there's FOMO with that. And we'll get, we'll get to that story in a moment, but before we do um, want to know a little bit more about the East coast kind of slowly starting to open up. It, it, is the feeling that everyone over in the East coast is behind the times with Washington, with the West Coast having opened up? And where is the money going to go? Is it going to go towards the West with distressed assets being able to buy cheaper, um, you know, pennies on the dollar in Oregon? Or are you going to spend 150% and have to write some stuff off if you open up in Massachusetts or Philly? I think both. I do. I, um, I think there's going to be money coming into both. There's certainly a lot of opportunity on the West Coast with distressed assets or even consolidation plays, mergers and acquisitions that are all over the place. But I also think there's a lot of people that are going to come from the West Coast to set up shop here. A lot of people are going to want to be growing weed in New Jersey. They're about to give out 37 cultivation licenses and there's going to be a lot of applicants. So I think that the market size, many people realize that the market size in this part of the country is absolutely huge. And we are about five or six years behind Washington and, and 10 years behind California and so on. Um, so it's, it's definitely a time for us to catch up. But what we know for sure though, is the customer base is as big, if not bigger than, than the West Coast states. There's more people here. You know, I mean, they, you know, those markets are doing, and with the exception of, of California, obviously there's a lot of people, but the, the black market still dominates here. You know, and so that's going to shift and, and a lot of that black market money will go into legal entities and there'll be jobs created and taxed very soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, Massachusetts, they've got a ton of colleges right there and there's just so many cities. So for me to go to Portland, I have to drive over three hours to hit a city. 
Um, And you can probably get through many, many cities in that same amount of time on the East Coast. So there is a a lot of potential out there. um, And I'm sure there's a lot of investors drooling over that idea. So, sorry, I just wanted to add one other thing about the investors is that New York City, as we know, the financial capital of the world, there is a, you know, the money that flows through the businesses there, the hedge funds, the investors, the private uh, high net worth people, the family offices, et cetera. It's very large. And so my feeling has been all these years that people don't really realize what's going on in Seattle. Like how, like I go to Seattle, I'm like, this is crazy. There's weed shops everywhere. There's so much business. And then I go to Portland and then I go to Vegas and LA. And it's like, there's, you know, you can just sort of feel it. And so it gets me, you know, pretty pumped up. You come back here and people are still like, you know, it's, it's, it's really big on the West coast, but once it becomes more real and they see it every day and they start to read the numbers, the investors in New York state and New York city are going to put up more money. There's going to be more institutional money coming in, you know, and so I, I expect that to happen pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah, I think it's 2017. Most of people in New York had no idea what concentrates were. If you were to throw the word dab at people, they <laughs> wouldn't know what you were talking about. And that wasn't know, that long ago. They, they wouldn't even know what vape pens were a couple of years ago, really. And, and, you know, liquid live resin and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. there's still, and that, that's actually a great point about brands and product type, um, we're still just scratching the surface here about you know what you can get actually in a store. I was just talking to Emily and Morgan Paxia of Poseidon Asset Management about, uh, and Emily made, made what I would consider a, a hyperbolic statement that there are no brands. I totally agree, but I've been flambasted for saying it. And so I think a lot of people are like, no, there's brands out there. Well, yeah, just because you've asked what's the highest THC with the lowest price point, and now you have your brand, doesn't mean there are actually brands that people want to go to. So when you see something and you relate to it, and there's this, this, this exchange of identity, that is what brand identity and recognition is in the traditional format. Um, not just about price and convenience as the, the two points that people go to, to find their product. Uh, branding is just now, I think, going to start hitting the scenes. Yes. What is that going to do to the Northeast when they have all these opportunities and examples of how not to do it? You don't copy Hershey, for example, and get sued. What, <laughs> what is branding going to look like in the Northeast? Yeah, it's an exciting question, actually. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. So I think that you're going to see a lot of brands that have been successful out West try and open up and sell to this market. And some are going to fail and some are going to do well. Cookies is just the one example that everyone brings up because they, they've been the most successful at growing from state to state. And now people out here know the cookies brand, even though they don't know it intimately. So I do think, you know, I've always held this view that it's going to evolve like alcohol did uh, way, in, way back. You know, now we can go to any bar in the country and see very similar brands of vodka and whiskey. And so it's going to take many years and we do need some laws to change, but a lot of really popular brands out West will be opening up in the East coast and selling to new audiences. And if they do it well, they can become like another CPG uh, product that you see in many other verticals. Yeah. That's the idea. Become a consumer product, good and not really uh, an agricultural product. Hopefully that will, will be the um, maturing point when we kind of can see that the whole industry is, is growing up and, and maturing. Um, I want to talk to you about some cannabis investments. So pre-pandemic, we saw a lot of people kind of getting into um, 
you know, maybe accurate dosing, you saw some beverages, uh, people were talking about investing in cannabis cafes, even though they still aren't a thing. <laughs> uh, what was it like investing pre-pandemic, um, aside from ridiculous decks that were just an idea without um, any revenue? <laughs> Hopefully you don't see any pre-money valuations coming through anymore. Not too many, but they're still out there. No, it's, you know, it's all over the place, really. Um, you have some people that are really gaining traction and growing their businesses and doing really well. And you can project, uh, you know, an exit or an, a public event in a couple of years for them. Um, there's certain sectors that are, you know, outliers, you know, everybody, you know, everyone's growing weed and there's lots of stores everywhere, but where are the picks and shovels and blue jeans, you know, um, in this world. And so that's something that we focus on. I think that what you're seeing now though, are the valuations are going up. And so the thing pre-pandemic, um, things looked expensive. Now they're, they look cheap or, or they look cheap before because the pandemic has proven that cannabis is essential. Most cannabis companies have done fairly well. We did have the election change. So I think that that all played into the part of these, these investments are a better idea now than they were a year ago. And so I think that's changed the calculus on some of these decks as well. Are sin stocks discounted? Cannabis now being a part of that, uh, you know, the tobacco and defensive um, alcohol, um, that whole category of sin stocks, you know, for the first time since the last crash of 2008. Generally speaking, or historically speaking, sin stocks are, are discounted until there's a correction in the market and then they kind of work their way back up to fair value looking like there's a, an increase or an inverse relationship during an economic downturn. Do you think cannabis stocks in the same light are discounted because of their, their sin qualities um, and previous pump and dump uh, situations or, or do you think they're fair valued? I think they're discounted. And I think it's also watching the Canadian market go up and down the last two years, a lot of people, you know, saw canopy growth go up into the 40s and then crash back down um, based on a lot of fundamental reasons. Um, so I think that that you are seeing, though, um, some things getting overextended, but it's still early. And I think to your point, like this is a different type of product, though, there, even though those other syntax sin stocks are, you know, are in a category. Cannabis is also a medical product. Cannabis is medicine in a lot of places. And so when it, there's a lot of money that's being spent on cannabis as medicine that is not calculated in, in the public. In other words, I don't think people realize how important this can be and how it can replace other medicine. And so if you take some of the sleep market and, and substitute cannabis instead of Ambien, that's a big addressable market right there. And so I think those kind of things are discounted or not considered when you consider the potential size of where cannabis is headed. Yeah, and it's gaining a lot of steam, right? So post-election, post-November, I think you're definitely going to see cannabis remain an essential business. Washington State has had a ban on marijuana lounges since 2016. We have a Class C felony on maintaining and operating a marijuana lounge. So that's definitely been sidetracked. Um, the bill that I wrote in 2019 and submitted is, is dead in the water until this whole thing is over. Meanwhile, Washington also does not have delivery. That's going to get fast-tracked. So post-pandemic, what changes are you seeing? What's getting delayed? 
What's getting pushed forward? I think delivery is actually one thing that's being pushed forward more. Um, I also think ordering digitally uh, on website ordering is definitely on the rise, like ordering online, picking up at the store um, is definitely a trend that we're seeing. Um, and just, you know, the ability to, to uh, discount brands or discount products through promotions is another trend that we've seen a lot lately where there's more deals, so there's more competition, so there's more deals and people aren't roaming around as much. So you're getting more text messages with offers and things like that. So there's more, I think there's more marketing that's going on for each individual company. Um, and they, you know, they've done fairly well during the pandemic. So they're tr trying to extend those gains. I do think things will shift back to normal a little bit, um, but there's certain trends like the delivery trend is gonna continue um, in many more states. Headset has an interesting report on delivery. You can see $65 in California is the average item price because that's the minimum delivery. And then Happy Monkey, Monkey with a U, another data analytics company, they got an interesting report about how um, deals and um, incentives are actually more competitive for non-members. So as people who just walk into the store and they kind of see these deals, they're actually more incentivized to take advantage of those than existing ones. So data has been definitely interesting this year with consumer behavior changes and seeing all of that post-pandemic. What are some investment changes uh, that you've seen or, or trying to, to uh, uh, correct or, or change to take advantage of, of the new opportunities? Well, I guess I could give you a couple of, of examples. Um, we've certainly been looking at the telemedicine space now. Um, mm -hmm. We have an investment there that's been looking better. Um, we are looking at you know, the expansion of the states and looking at companies that could move into different markets pretty easily. So with the, you know, with the, uh, the more customers coming online all the time, you know, the advertising side is space is, has gone accelerated. The money spent on branding is going way up. Um, and so we, we are looking to leverage those spaces that we think will are doing well now, but will take off more when things go back to normal. So we, we try and think, you know, a year in advance here, and we're looking at the, the size of the market. Um, we, we also noticed that the total market is exploding with still 75% of it underground. So about, about like 10 billion to 17 billion, something like that last year, and still a lot of it is underground. So we're trying to project where the uh, customers are gonna be and invest in those places, even in the Midwest, like Oklahoma, you know, where, where there's lots of activity. So I, I kind of think about it geographically and where the space is moving and, and try and make moves into those regions. Is Oklahoma the next Oregon? Yeah, it could be. <laughs> could be. All right. All right. Moving on. Uh, telemedicine. Um, I want to follow up with that because Puerto Rico, the advantages of doing business in Puerto Rico with bilingual call centers or uh, telemedicine, I think, is a phenomenal opportunity to take advantage of Puerto Rico's uh, taxes down there being the only place in, in America you can go and not be forced to pay taxes because they don't have representation and you can't have taxes without uh, representation. So is that something that you've seen companies look at? I don't, in my opinion, 85% of CBD companies will fail unless they have an entity in Puerto Rico, American businesses. It's just too competitive. And if you're in California and you're not in Puerto Rico, you'll be the first ones to go out of business. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your take on that? Is that an opportunity? Is that anything anyone's looking at? 
We're not looking at that too closely right now, but I do think that the uh, globalization of this business is going to accelerate. I think we, we're looking to invest in companies that are doing business in more than one country. Um, and so I think that, you know, certainly with the Puerto Rico issue, it's, it's not exactly a state or another country, but, um, you know, it is, uh, it's definitely a good option. We do see a lot of people outsourcing manufacturing to other places too. So I think we're going to see people, I think you're going to see Colombia try and grow really in Mexico, growing very inexpensive cannabis. And so that's actually a threat to growers up in your part of the world um, that are, have to grow at a certain price per pound. And so I think we're going to see more of that trend going on. But as far as, you know, trying to maximize profits, uh, we haven't seen a lot of movement on that, although I expect we will soon. What about the crystal ball predictions? So I took a, a very small data set from um, about 14 different magazines, 70 pieces of data where they had uh, crystal ball predictions and kind of aggregated that here. And so international expansion was number seven, where 8% of, of these groups decided that international expansion was going to be part of 2021's crystal ball prediction. Do you have anything either on this list or not on the list? Um, whereas price and profit last year was number one. People were anticipating that businesses were going to have to shore up their, their balance sheets and become more profitable. Now it's all about legal regulation. And I think, you know, the November election really kind of hit that off. Uh, we've mentioned consolidation, everything with CBD and hemp and rare cannabinoids, with the demand staying where it's at uh, and investment surging. What does your crystal ball prediction say? Yeah, I would still move price and profit up a little higher here. Um, I think it's definitely getting more competitive and companies that have been burning cash need to, you know, need to turn it around and show some profitability. Um, a lot of these companies, as you mentioned, are, are not doing well because they have had a couple of years where they weren't making profit. They were selling a lot and the demand was strong, um, but they weren't profitable. So I think you're going to see still see a push towards that this year. Um, I, I think consolidation is going to be even bigger. Than, than what you have here a little bit. I think a lot of groups are looking to consolidate right now and there's strength in numbers and a lot of competitors. Quick, is, that, is, that, um, is that consolidation capitulation or is that an agreeable M&A? I think it's probably mostly agreeable M&A, but there also are distressed assets that are now rolled up together. So we've looked at many deals where they're trying to roll two things together that aren't maybe killing it, but together they, they do better. Um, so I think that's going to happen. I also think there's going to be some major players that are going to get into the space that are going to want to buy up something here or something there and put it and make it their sales an MSO very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think people are going to try and do that, especially with the public markets going so well for the cure leaves and the true leaves of the world. I think other players are going to try and uh, mimic that. It's a lot yeah, more territory. Through a specialty purpose acquisition corp? Yes, I see SPACs every every week now, and I think they are going to be increasingly uh, popular in this space. They it's called them SPVs in 2008. Weren't they just specialty purpose vehicles and now they're SPACs? Like, where did it get the extra letter from? And Yeah, I think that uh, the difference is SPVs, you have to know what you're going to invest in first. For SPACs, you just have to have a really good team and a good plan, and you can uh, get a billion dollars. Really good PR team. Yeah, I hope it works out for for all the SPACs. I really do. Um, 
let's let's jump into to the markets. Um, there's been a lot of interesting stuff that's been happening over the last you know month. Cannabis stocks have been going gangbusters. Um, you know, we've got our own AI based uh, trading algorithm. It was up uh, over 50% in the first three weeks of the year. And then that GW Pharma merger happened and it pushed us over a hundred percent return in like 34 days or something crazy. Um, and a lot of that is people jumping into the industry and speculating. It's not really investing. Our robot is day trading. We don't invest at all. Um, so with a lot of people jumping in on that GameStop, yeah. there, there was GameStop and there was AMC theaters and there's SLV Silver. There's um, a couple other ones. Uh, I think Nokia was, yeah. was one. Um, as it relates to the industry, there's pump and dump issues where uh, MedMen, I mean, uh, <laughs> that's a Freudian slip. Uh, Medbox, MDBX was their ticker symbol. And Medbox went from 20 cents to $200 and then back down. This is like in 2012 or something. They were an ATM machine and it was a pump and dump. So the industry has had these uh, for a long time. And whether it's CBD, snake oil being sold and, and losing credibility for some, um, I'm wondering if this whole GameStop AMC thing isn't going to deteriorate credibility in the same way that the tulip mania did in the 1400s, where people stopped believing in the financial system. What's your take? Yeah, no, I, I kind of agree with you. I think that there's definitely a risk for speculation beyond anybody's wildest dreams. You know, people happen to really like cannabis and it's a sexy investment right now. And so when they see things going up and they're individual traders on Robinhood, um, they're going to go for the weed stocks and then they're going to smoke weed later in the day and talk about how they just bought, bought shares of Curaleaf or something like that. Um, so I think that we, we have to be very careful uh, about that. Uh, however, as we mentioned earlier, there's certain uh, companies in the space that have a lot of growth ahead of them and they may look uh, inexpensive at what they're at today. Because I think the average consumers, uh, average investors are now starting to understand the capacity of this business and the size and scale. Um, and if you see, if you see this part of the country start to change the laws, all you need is a good news story about New York, <laughs> you know, that they're about to solve the problem tomorrow and sign a bill. And you will see, you know, even more increase because a lot of these companies will have a chance to grow their footprint. Along the way, though, there will be um, some, some pump and dump situations. And I think you saw that in Canada, um, for sure. So you have to uh, watch what happened to those. Now, I like to look at the Canadian market now, public markets, because it's a couple of years later. And, you know, they've had their roller coaster. And now some of the companies, uh, Tilray had that big merger recently, right? So um, maybe that's, I haven't looked at their fundamentals lately, but that's a good, you know, that's a good story for the future now. And maybe they'll they'll get back to their lofty levels, um, but they went through some pain to get there. Yeah, that's assuming they get a new CEO, somebody other than Brandon Kennedy, who actually knows something about cannabis. Um, I've been talking trash about them from day one. I, I agree with you there. It's, he was waiting for a buyout. It didn't happen. So he went with the merger. That's not he was waiting for a Fortune 500 Coca-Cola to buy him out. But yeah. he didn't have a clue about the industry nor the culture. Uh, you asked the uh, the acreage and canopy situation is pretty interesting too. 
um, you know, they're in this period of time where they're, you know, trying to achieve certain levels. I don't know all the details of it, but um, that deal doesn't look as good as it did when it was announced. Yeah, so they're closing down a quarter million dollar uh, production facility they got out of Colombia, which has great terroir and really low labor, which probably had something to do with, you know, the government of Canada not wanting to import it, whatever. But when you're writing off $3 billion and Aurora's writing off a billion, do I really want to invest that knowing you're not really putting the money to work and you're just going to write my money off? I mean, I'm going to look towards the US as well, yeah. even though they're private companies, I'm going to try to get in on you know, Dogecoin or something stupid that's going up 25,000% in a year because these other clowns up, up in the North, they don't know what they're doing with my money. So why wouldn't I put, you know, follow uh, Tesla where Elon Musk puts in $1.5 billion into Bitcoin. Um, you know, it, it's insane when, when, you, when you start to look at what people are willing to, to do to get a return these days. It, you know, the IPO used to be really, really risky. And now like crypto has made that even more risky and people are looking for even higher risks. Is that a result of the deterioration of the dollar as we keep printing money? Or is it the gamification of the stock market? I think it's more the gamification of the stock market and the, the ability for average investors with not a lot of money to really trade in and out of stocks for no cost. Um, there's a lot of debate about the Robinhood like zero cost model, whether it's uh, hurt things or not. It certainly helped a lot of people get into trading. Um, I also think you have people sitting at home during the pandemic and not spending money on vacations and bars and restaurants, and they're sitting home trading stocks. So I think that that is the combination of it, too. And I also think you have people that are not really following the fundamentals. Um, they're trading on, on names and news. Um, and they're really getting caught up in the frenzy of it, which you know concerns me that we have a bubbles bubbles forming in certain sectors. Um, and so I, I feel like you know being a little defensive here is probably a smart move. However, we also are in the beginning of a gold rush for cannabis, and so if you want to look, hold buy and hold some of these companies for a couple of years, I think that's a pretty sound strategy. Yeah, I think there's a lot of them that are going to either be gobbled up or, um, you know, out of business, but plenty of them that are going to stick around. So you definitely want to find a... I wanted to add, one, sorry, Josh, I wanted to add one other thing about uh, the price of, of these things. I, I, I do refer back to politics a lot. And um, if these bills uh, go through, if the banking bill and 280E are combined and pass that immediately will add value to those stocks fundamentally. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever their EBITDAs were and whatever their projections are, they're gonna just tick up. It whether they should be more than banking. Yes, correct. Yeah, banking would be convenience, but 280E means you get to write off your employee yes. taxes. That's huge. Yes. That's huge. And immediately the valuations go up of all the private deals. I mean, we're, we're racing to get into more private deals at current valuations because we know they're going up. And what so, happens to IIPR um, with their reverse, uh, not reverse, they have um, sale leaseback options. Is that going to destroy or, or diminish their ability to, to remain a going concern? Are they going to have to just pivot to stay relevant? I think they still have a lot of growth. I still like that company. There's, there's a lot of places they can grow into. There's so much more footprint to go. 
there's many more states and buildings that need to be leased and, and bought, et cetera. And so I do think they have plenty more runway ahead of them. Even if banking is legalized and people can go to, through traditional avenues, do you still think that they're going to be around? Um, hmm. I think it'll take quite a number of years after the laws have changed for it to be as easy as, as going to get a loan as now for a business. Um, so I do think there's there's time, but eventually I think you're right. I think it'll be the easier that it is to finance your company through a regular bank, the less important they become. Um, but their portfolio has gotten pretty large from what I understand. And, you know, it's going to get bigger. What do you think is going to happen after this whole GameStop thing comes out? For me, it seems like Occupy Wall Street 2.0, where it's it's Main Street versus Wall Street, uh, yeah, and uh, hedge funds and everyone else kind of being the target. Um, if there is a lack of trust in the industry, is it a matter of time before people just kind of jump back into it? Or is it going to take something like an artificial intelligence-based trading platform for people to feel comfortable getting into the industry? What is going to be the game changer for people to look at a corrupt system and still want to participate in it? I think the answer is technology. I do. I think there's a lot of th things that people don't understand about the way stocks are traded and the way, you know, the reserves that they need. I think the Robin Hood CEO was saying, you know, we needed to come up with $3 billion by, by 9am or we were in big trouble. And, and so I think that the, the system is a little bit rigged uh, for the hedge funds right now. And I think technology could solve that problem, um, but it needs to be regulated better. Um, there, there's too many regulations that are, are exploited by fancy financial trading firms with, you know, and then the individual investor kind of, uh, you know, kind of gets left out sometimes, which is what made this story so fascinating is this is one of the few times I can remember where the little guy actually uh, beat out the big guy, whether it was worth, you know, worthwhile or not, like the, a lot of hedge funds lost a lot of money that day and a lot of individual investors. But at the same time, you know, I feel like the individual investors were just trading just to trade and enjoyed watching their screens light up. And then they, they reality hit in a couple of days later and they can't afford those losses, the individuals. So they need to be protected from themselves, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, there's that unfortunate story of a kid who um, thought he was negative like 700,000, but it was really just uh, his margin account um, and he committed suicide. Oh, so wow. when I worked for a brokerage firm, you weren't even allowed to have margin unless you could prove that you were financially sophisticated. But right. yet at, at something like Robinhood, they give it to you as like a default. So now you can trade options. And that was a whole nother thing. Like in order to be, uh, you know, margin and options, all these things were individual applications that were vetted. And now it's like, nope, default, go for it. Don't care about you. Yeah. I'm not really sure. I mean, apparently it's legal. I don't think it's moral nor ethical at all. Um, but, you know, people do need to take some responsibility. I mean, there is no financial school. You know, you don't go to school and learn about how to write your checkbook. So we need yeah. to change that too. Um, yes. So I, uh, a whole bunch of stuff needs to change. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that. We do need to protect the, the individual person, but the, every, everyone needs to know, understand if they're going to trade like this, they need to know the rules. It's complicated. Options trading is complicated. And unless you really sit there and study it and pay attention to it every day, you could lose a lot. 
you shouldn't be able to just look up Iron Condor and click Iron Condor and, and have Robin Hood figure it out. Like if you can't figure out the spreads and straddles and the, and the you know, puts and calls yourself, you shouldn't be able to push one button and have it be like, bing, 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 here you go. That's mm-hmm. the most complicated option strategy out there. And if you don't know that what it's made for, you should be buying it. I, I think it's, a, I think it's incredibly irresponsible on Robinhood's behalf to allow novice investors to buy incredibly complex, sophisticated option strategy. So shame on you, Robin Hood. <laughs> no, I, you know, I completely agree with that. And frankly, the interview with the uh, founder was a disaster on uh, uh, that day. And I just thought he was way in over his head and didn't really realize what they unleashed. Having said that, you know, they did, you know, it was pretty open and honest about how the Robin Hood thing worked. And, and, he, and they did level the playing field and allow people to trade that couldn't really afford or have a stockbroker. So they, they did something interesting along the way, but it's just like everything else. It needs to be, you know, reined in a little bit. Yeah. Kind of like big tech too, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Definitely. We'll probably see more of that. Maybe, I don't know, with the Biden administration, maybe not. Uh, Facebook might get off scot-free. We'll see. Um, anything I left out? Anything else you want to cover before we roll this one up? Well, I just would have wanted to say that, you know, after spending about seven years in this space, I feel like it's still the first or second inning a lot of the time. And um, I do think that there's just enormous opportunity for growth in, in so many different sectors. We, we are currently deployed in about 20 or 22 different types of cannabis investments, you know, lab testing and trade shows. And I think there's continues to be a lot of opportunity out there you know, um, just being with the right people at the right time in the right markets, um, there's a lot of growth ahead for both public and private deals. So it's an exciting time. It is. I felt like I was uh, really late to the game in 2015. <laughs> and yeah. I can't believe it's only, uh, was that, is that only six years? So I guess I started in 2013, but really kind of got involved in 2015. Um, but yeah, it, it, at the same time, six years, not that long, but it's been a lifetime in this industry. It's like dog years. Yes, it is. It's like dog years. And it's, uh, but it's also it's just a lot of great people along the way. Um, and, you know, it's a pleasure meeting you. I really appreciate you having me on today. Um, but it's, I, I love exchanging, you know, uh, ideas and thoughts with other cannabis professionals. Um, and it's just so stimulating. And, and so many people have interesting businesses and dreams. And, you know, our job is to help people realize those dreams, you know, with investment and advice and consulting and advertising. And I just think, um, you know, it's, it's so exciting to be part of an industry at these early days. And, you know, back to this, this part of the country, you know, it's going to look a lot different in a couple of years. And, and I'm, I'm going to be here and watching it happen. And um, that's exciting, too. It's going to be really cool once uh, everything opens up and, um, you know, post-pandemic world uh, is, is here where events are, are a thing because yeah. Illinois, you know, and all these other states, um, Vermont or New Jersey that have events, you know, that I haven't been able to go to, Arizona. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been to the Dakotas. Might as well go up there. <laughs> you got to get you on the East Coast, though. Yeah, no, I, I haven't been to New York in a long time, um, but yeah, yeah but you get out there. Uh, I, spend, I haven't I been spend, to Philly. You guys need to get some infused queso. Uh, that should be your thing. 
Washington okay. needs some infused coffee still. We don't have that. So maybe we should we should start that. We'll, we'll, we'll trade. I'll bring coffee to you and you can bring infused Perfect. queso here and we can do Philly cheesesteaks and coffee. There you go. I'm in. I love it out there. Seattle's a great place. All right. Look me up next time you're here. Okay. I want to thank my guest, Scott Berman. He's um, a NBA statistician with the Philadelphia 76ers, also a uh, principal with Panther. Uh, is it Panther Capital? It's actually the Panther Group. The Panther Group. What yeah. are some of the links? Where can people find you at? Uh, well, our website is institutionalcannabis.com. And we're actually do, putting up a new Panther Group website soon. And you can always find me on LinkedIn. I'm on there every day. So look me up there and um, feel free to reach out. Love to meet new people. We'll put some of those links in the show notes in the description. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out. And check out these other videos that we've got.